years and years ago when I was just a young, a young boy, I had already made plans for my life regarding college. I had a plan, I knew where I was going, I had figured out my path. And then, in my high school years, my path hit a fork in the road, and I had two choices before me. And I actually made the choice I never expected or imagined to make. And I made that choice, and now, 30 years later, I can look back on that one single choice. From this vantage point, I see the ramifications of that choice far more than I understood it in that moment. The ramifications of that choice were far beyond my imagination. You, you can see as you look back over your life, similar choices that now you understand had far greater ramifications than you ever imagined in the moment. Let's read Revelation chapter 16. Here's what we're going to do. Revelation 16 can be broken down into three different scenes. It's the vision of the seven bowls of God's wrath. We're going to tackle it in three scenes. So we're going to read through verses 1 through 12. I'll give some explanation along the way so that we follow what's happening here in scene 1. Then we'll get into scene 2, do the same thing. We'll get into scene 3, do the same thing. And then we're going to just unpack those three scenes in the vision and how they relate to our lives. So let's start reading together scene one, which is Revelation 16, verse one. And I heard a great voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. In the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth. And there came ulcers, terrible and evil. Now your translation may use the words loathsome and malignant, or ugly and severe. The point is, these words represent ulcers like no human being has ever experienced. So ulcers come that are bad and evil upon men who have the mark of the beast and who have worshipped his image. Now consider that at the time that this is occurring, up until this moment, those who have received the mark of the beast, demonstrating their allegiance to Satan, their willingness to worship the beast and follow his ways, 
receiving the mark of the beast, aligning them with the beast and the red dragon, has meant for them protection from the wrath of the beast. Has meant for them the opportunity to continue in the economic experiences of the world, to have a job. Has enabled them to buy food and buy water, to escape what has happened to all those who did not receive the mark of the beast. So up until this moment, the mark of the beast has meant for the world protection and life. And in this moment, when the first bowl of wrath is poured out, the lie of the enemy is exposed. The mark of the beast was not able to protect anyone or provide real life to anyone. The mark of the beast simply marked an individual for the wrath of God from which there is no escape. The lie of the enemy is exposed. And the sovereignty of God is on display. Verse 3. And the second poured out his bowl upon the sea. And it became blood as a dead man. And all the living creatures in the sea died. And the third poured out his bowl upon the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So all over the face of the earth, every source of water has now been turned to death. And everything in the sea has died. And the smell of death drifts across the whole world. And John says, I heard the angel of the waters saying, you are righteous who is and who was. Now note there, who is and who was is missing that third little description of God that we've seen already in Revelation, who is, who was, and who is to come. Remember again, we have now seen the one who is to come. He's here. And so now we're just saying he is, he was, because the one who is to come has come. You are righteous, the one who is, the one who was, the Holy One, incomparable in your ways. Same word here we talked about last week in Revelation 15. Incomparable in all your ways. Nobody is like you. You are holy and different from anything else in all the world. You are the Holy One because you have judged these things. Verse 6, because... You poured out, they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You gave them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar say, you remember what we saw under the altar? 
those who had been killed because they stood for Jesus Christ, crying out for justice. So now a voice calls out from the altar. The altar says, yes, Lord God Almighty. True and right are your judgments. There is this voice that rings out from the angel of the waters. And it is unreal. You people have slaughtered my people. And you have spilled their blood. And now blood you will drink. You deserve the wrath of God. Boy, that is heavy. Verse 8, and the fourth poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to burn men, scorch men with fire. And, and men were burned with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the authority over these plagues. And they did not repent to give him glory. And the sixth poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkened. And they Chewed, they bit their tongues from the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven for their pain and for their ulcers, and they did not repent from their deeds. Have you ever been so cold? in the dark of the night that the coldness created pain in your limbs. You ever felt that feeling? I don't know why I like to go hunting early in the morning in the dead of winter when the sun is not up because inevitably it creates tremendous pain. My feet get frozen and I'm hurting and I sit there waiting for the sun to come up to thaw out my limbs so that I don't feel the pain. Have you ever felt pain like that in the cold of night? If you feel pain like that, you might find yourself having um, this experience. Maybe biting your tongue, your lips, so that you feel pain in your tongue and might forget the pain in your feet. Have you ever done that? That's the picture that's being created here. The darkness is bringing such severe, inescapable pain 
that you're willing to create new pain in your life as if to cover up the pain you cannot escape from. And the devastation of this pain in the night that is inescapable is not relieved by the heat of day. No, the heat of day just creates more irreversible pain. When these bowls of wrath are poured out on the world, the world cannot escape this pain. And in light of this display of God's wrath, the world shakes its angry fist at God. The one who has the power over the plagues. The one who could relent. The one who could extend mercy in repentance. And they simply look at God and they say, we don't want you. We don't care about your mercy. We don't care about your holiness. We hate you. And we will shake our fist at you and we will blaspheme you if it's the last thing we do. Through our teeth gritting with pain, we simply say to you, we hate you. It's unbelievable. Verse 12. And the sixth poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates. And its water dried up. So that the way of the kings from the east was prepared. The sixth bowl of wrath is poured out and all 1,700 plus miles of the Euphrates River dries up so that the path is clear for the nations of the world to gather together with the beast in rebellion against God. The final battle. Now scene two begins in verse 13 and scene two is the greatest scene of futility in the history of the world. Let's read scene two, verse 13. And I saw from the mouth of the dragon and from the mouth of the beast and from the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits who were like frogs for they are spirits of demons going about performing signs who go out into the kings of the inhabited world to gather them together into the great city for the great day of God, the Almighty, the war of that great day. Verse 15. We hear this warning. So we've seen the setting here for this interlude, this gathering together of the world for war against God. Incredible effort. Unbelievable display of energy, time, and effort. 
and they're gathering together. And then there's this little break in the scene where we hear a warning and a promise. So seeing the scenes of the vision unfold and then there's this little snapshot of something that every single person in this room should listen to with great attentiveness. As if our minds and hearts aren't already arrested by the gravity of this vision, the Lord has provided us a specific warning and a wonderful promise. Here's the warning, verse 15 and the promise, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. There's the warning. Think about it like this. Someday, every single person in this room is going to meet Jesus Christ face to face. You will meet Jesus face to face. Either through the return of Jesus Christ or your death. Either way, When you meet Jesus face to face, it will be a thief in the night experience. You can't prepare for it. You can't expect it. You can't predict it. You don't know when it's going to happen. It comes on you suddenly, unexpected. You cannot prepare for that moment adequately. When you meet Jesus Christ face to face, it will be a thief in the night experience. So the warning is, be ready. Look at what is said here in the remainder of 15 in in regard to a promise. Now this is the third of seven beatitudes in Revelation. There are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. This is the third that we've seen so far. And it is an amazing promise. Blessed is the one who keeps watch or stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he does not walk around naked and they will not see his shame. So the idea here is something's going to happen in the middle of the night and you're not going to be prepared for it. You can't predict it. It's just going to happen. But what you ought to do is make sure you're as prepared as you can be. So that when it happens, you're not caught in shame. Be ready. We read something similar to this back in Revelation chapter 3 verse 18 or so. About how we ought to make sure and, and procure from Jesus the right kind of garments, white garments to clothe ourselves with so that we might not be found to be in shame by not having the right clothing. We we better be ready for the return of Christ and blessed are those who are ready. So there's the warning and the promise and we come back right to the gathering of all the nations. Verse 16. And they gathered them into the place which is called in Hebrew Armageddon. 
So now the whole world has gathered together for what we are terming the battle or the war in Armageddon. The world has gathered together in rebellion against God as if to make a final stand of blasphemy and hatred against God. Look at verse 17. Scene 3. The seventh poured out his bowl upon the air. And a great voice came out from the temple, from the throne, saying, done. Just a single word in the original text, done. It is done. Think of the contrast here. The entire world, can you imagine the energy, the effort, the time, the resources to gather the armies of the world in one place to stand against God in a final stand of rebellion and blasphemy? All that went into that, all of the effort, all of the, the, the work that went into that, and there they stood gathered together with all their forces of power, strength, time, and energy, and they're ready to do battle against God, and God simply says, Done. When God speaks, he speaks reality. His words are reality. And the reality that God speaks in this moment at the pouring out of the seventh bowl is the reality of victory. The sovereignty of God is on such display here is that we should understand that his power is incomparable, second to none. The world can gather all its forces and muster all of its powers and come against God most high. But in the single moment that God speaks done, he is victorious. Just with a word. The world's exhibited all its effort and God has simply spoken. Done. And victory occurs. The rest of Revelation is simply the unfolding of done. But the victory is accomplished at the word of God. Have you ever been watching a football game and you get into the third quarter and it's such a blowout that you say these words? This game is over. You ever done that? But you know it's not really over because you still got the final seconds to tick off the clock of defeat. But you know it's over. That's what's happening from this point forward in Revelation. It's done. And all that's left are the final seconds of defeat to tick off the clock of time as we know it. Before all that we experience in Christ is victory. Done. Now the rest of chapter 16 is this vision of the destruction that characterizes the final seconds ticking off the clock of time as we know it. Let's read that together. Verse 18. There came lightning and sounds and thunders and a great earthquake such that there had not been one from the time men came upon the earth. It was great earthquake and mighty. And the great city split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. 
And Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give to it the cup of the wine of the wrath of his anger. And all the islands fled and the mountains were not found. And great hailstones, a hundred pounds, fell from the heaven upon people. And the people blasphemed God from the plagues of the hail. Because this plague is great and severe. The, the landscape of the earth is a complete wasteland. You ever been in a hailstorm with soft by size hail? Living out in West Texas for a long time, I promise you, that's not a foreign experience. And it brings absolute devastation. Baseball and soft by size hail will wipe out a community. It's unbelievable what will happen. Do you know that the largest piece of hail on records just under the size of a volleyball and only weighed almost two pounds? Can you imagine 100-pound hailstones? It's like a massive beach ball of hail falling all over the face of the earth. Now, can you imagine that kind of devastation? Literally, the earth is ripping apart at the seams. Everything is falling apart in the wrath of God. And the people who are able to escape and live through these bulls simply look at God and say, we will continue to hate you. They blaspheme. No repentance whatsoever. The people who live at this time in the future are a people who have aligned themselves with the devil himself. Who have decided that they would worship the beast and all that he stands for. Who have bought into the system of the beast and have turned against any and everyone that calls on Jesus Christ and has slaughtered them to make a mockery of their decision to follow Christ. They hate God and they hate the people who follow God and they've wiped them out from the face of the earth. They stand at every offer of mercy, every offer of salvation, and they shake their fist at God in blasphemy. And the Bible right here says those people in that day who have so rejected God again and again and again and have slain all his followers in absolute hatred of God, those people in that day deserve God's wrath. You know, honestly, when I read all this stuff, I think to myself, that's not too hard to, to accept. I mean, th this is the highest level of rebellion against God the world has ever seen, and these people deserve the wrath of God. Just as true, far more difficult to accept is the reality that every single one of us deserve God's wrath just the same. The Bible tells us that. 
The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of our sin is death. Every single one of us has sinned against God. And no matter how we think about the categories of our sin, as we compare it to those around us who have sinned far worse than we have, when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, we have earned the wage of death. And upon our death, when we meet Jesus Christ face to face, we will experience the wrath of God that we deserve on our sins. Outside of God's favor, we deserve the wrath of God. Robert Frost wrote famous words in early 1900s. Two roads diverged in the woods. And I, I took the one less traveled. And that made all the difference. When Robert Frost wrote those words, he was writing about the decisions we make in life that because we make them exclude the other decisions we could have made. Jesus Christ talked about a decision. And he talked about two roads. And the decision that Jesus Christ talked about was about the most significant decision in life. He says, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. Few find it. Jesus talks about a path that leads us to what we deserve. The broad path of destruction. But Jesus also talks about a narrow path to what we do not deserve, life, hope, eternity. And Jesus says there are two roads and a small gate to the narrow path of what we don't deserve and a large gate and a broad path to what we do deserve. What we do deserve is the wrath of God. What we don't deserve is God's favor. And Jesus Christ said in John chapter 10 verse 9, I am the door. If you believe in me, you will be saved. Jesus Christ is the small gate. And he has invited us to trust in him as Lord and Savior and walk through him into the path to what we do not deserve, his favor, and escape the path of what we do deserve, his wrath. Every single person in this room deserves the wrath of God. But by sitting in this room this morning, you have the opportunity to choose the small gate. You have the chance right now to say, I want Christ. And I want to enter into the path of what I do not deserve, the favor of God. And there is only one gate. There is no other way. Just one. You know why there's only one gate and his name is Jesus Christ? Because only Jesus Christ took upon himself 
what he did not deserve. The wrath of God for our sins. And he took on himself what he did not deserve so that he might extend to us what we don't deserve. The favor of God. And the only way to receive what you don't deserve is by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Two roads diverge at this moment. Which road will you choose? If you choose Jesus Christ, you are choosing the path where you will never taste what you deserve. Every ounce of the wrath of God will be poured out until the last drop of wrath for your sin has been extinguished on Jesus Christ so that you, because you've trusted in Christ, will only have the lavishing of God's favor on you forever. This passage makes this so abundantly clear. When God says, done, you know that statement, done, references the wrath of God poured out on people's lives who are traveling the path of what they deserve. They will taste God's wrath and it will be done. But if you choose the small gate of Christ, then 2,000 years ago, there's a better word echoing out for you. You know what that word is? Jesus said it at the cross. One word, finished. When Jesus said finished, he said for you and me, if we choose Christ, that he absorbed all the wrath of God for our sin and there is no more wrath left. Favor the path of what we don't deserve. If you choose Jesus Christ, then you are choosing Something far more than what you don't deserve. If you choose the gate of Jesus Christ, you are put on the path of who you don't deserve. It's not just that you will miss out on what you deserve. It's that you will gain who you don't deserve. Jesus Christ and knowing him and walking with him and knowing his favor is our great reward. We are rescued by Christ to a path of who we don't deserve to know. And we get to spend our whole lives getting to know him. That, that's what it means to respond to the warning. To be ready. To live ready is living in relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to this. If you live in repentance, 
a relationship with Christ where you are constantly, because of the presence and the favor of Christ, aligning yourself with who God is and what he says so that your sinfulness is transformed into the clothing of Christ's righteousness more and more over the course of your life. If you live in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are ready for his return in that thief in the night meeting face to face. You are ready. And you will not experience the fear of shame. You know, every one of us in here has experienced the shame of sin. Where we have done something, something oftentimes that only God knows. And we feel the fear of if it were exposed to the world, how shameful that would be. And when we come to meet Jesus Christ, he so forgives us of all our sins. He knows every single sin you've done in the most secret moment. And he has cleaned you, forgiven you, and removed your shame. And in your forgiveness, he invites you into the favor of knowing him, saturating your life with the word of God, filling your heart with the prayers of God, spending time with the community of the faith of those who believe in Christ, and for him to continue out of that forgiveness to shape your life into righteousness more and more until the day he returns. You will not ever be fearful of shame because you will live ready for the return of Christ. That's the path of who we don't deserve to know. Two roads diverge at this moment. Which road will you choose? You know, the, the road to who you don't deserve to know and the road of what is deserved run parallel. Here's what I mean by that. If you've trusted Jesus Christ this morning, everything you're doing in relationship with Christ is being put on display so that those who are today still on the road to what they deserve, the wrath of God, can see everything we're experiencing on the road of who we don't deserve to know. And every action and every word in our relationship with Christ in the world in which we live are creating one road ramp after another, an on-ramp to the small gate of Jesus Christ for those who do not know him. Your decision about your path has ramifications for others' decisions about their path far beyond our imagination. Which path will you choose?